0: Okay. Praise the Lord. You got rivers, rivers of life flowing out of your innermost being. Amen. Does everybody have an outline? You should have a blue uh, covered packet that has songs and outlines in it. If you don't, raise your hand. Okay. Back in the very back, there's, there's one. Raise your, keep your hand up if you need it. Maybe he was just stretching. <clears throat> okay, so tonight, um, we're going to begin this conference, and because people are coming from various distances away and traffic could be bad here and there, people will be trickling in as the evening wears on, but we're going to go ahead and get started tonight on message one, and this can be found on page 16 of your packet, page 16, one six and uh and maybe before we actually start this message how about we read the title of the entire conference which is on the front of your packet let's read the title together go christ and the church revealed and experienced in second corinthians okay how about brothers let's read it strongly christ and the church Revealed and experienced in Second Corinthians. Sisters. Christ and the church revealed and in 2 Corinthians. What are you gonna to see tonight? Christ and the church revealed and in 2 Corinthians. Amen. Not just tonight, but the entire weekend. Uh, the entire weekend. Now we come to message one which is entitled, The New Covenant Economy of God. And this first message is just to kind of lay a um, broad brush foundation for the entire weekend. Uh, praise the Lord, we are new covenant people. Amen. Lincoln, you're a new covenant believer. Amen. You're no longer under the old covenant. Amen. The old one is gone. Amen. It's over. Praise the, praise the Lord. Jesus Christ fulfilled that one. Amen. And he brought in a new covenant. And we are new covenant people, the, and uh, the economy of God is just the way that God deals with His people in a certain time period, in a certain way. In the Old Testament times, He dealt with His people through the law. Uh, but you know what? If there was a law that was able to give life, then righteousness would have been of the law. But there was no such law. But praise the Lord, we're not under that covenant anymore. We're not under that way of dealing, uh, God dealing with us anymore. We are under the way of the New Testament economy of God. And that is his administrative arrangement to be able to dispense himself into us, to produce for himself a counterpart that matches him in life, in nature, in expression, in representation, in authority. That's our destiny. Praise the Lord. So we want to see this, and actually, because we're in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, we're just going to dive into a single verse in 2 Corinthians tonight, and we're going to unpack it little by little, phrase by phrase. Could you imagine spending the whole night on just one verse? But this is the last verse, the final verse of 2 Corinthians. It's right there on your page, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Let's read it all together. Go. and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be with you all. Hallelujah. Um, we're going to do something a little different tonight as well. If you've been to previous conferences, uh, you know, this board here has always been small. I don't know, it's never grown, it's always remained the same size. It's too small, and the markers are too dull to, to see in the back. So the brothers are going to try something different uh, this weekend. And that is that they're going to use an iPad. Uh, thumbs up means it's ready to go. Okay. So they, (laughs) uh, I don't know if you want me to speak louder or, uh, but anyways, they're going to use an iPad and it's going to show up on the screens. I believe that's the plan. And, uh, as we, so it's warming up, it takes about 30 seconds. I think it's about there. Uh, there it is. Okay. So the first thing that we want to look at. Now, of course, the verse, it says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to take it a little bit out of order. We're going to start with the love of God uh, because the love of God is really the source of the grace of Christ. It's God himself as the source of the grace of Christ. So we want to start at the beginning. We want to start with the source, which is God himself and the love of God. This is letter A. And, uh, and by the way, with, with 2 Corinthians, uh, you're not going to see a whole lot of teaching in this book, but you're going to see a whole lot of experience of Christ. Some have said that the book of 2 Corinthians is an autobiography of a man living in his spirit, living in the Holy of Holies. That was, of course, the author was the Apostle Paul. He was a man living in his spirit. Experiencing Christ in so many different kinds of ways uh, and angles. And there's so many metaphors there to help describe and, and unpack all these experiences of Christ. Um, but anyways, beginning with the love of God, uh, maybe Merrill could draw this. Uh, just the first two parts of this diagram. It starts with God, who was there in eternity past. And there's an arrow coming down to incarnation. Uh, Letter A just covers this much of the diagram. Some of you are familiar with this diagram. Who has never seen the diagram we're going to put on this screen? Okay, there's some here that have never seen it. Okay, I hope you have a pencil. Take some notes. Write some things down. Because during this conference, during the weekend, there's going to be opportunity for you brothers and sisters, to overflow, to speak what you've seen, what you've enjoyed, what you've tasted, and uh, so we recommend that you take some notes. But the love of God, um, one says eternity past. Let's read John 1.1. Go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see any shortage in this verse? see any shortage, any lack in this verse? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It seems there's no problem here, right? How can you say there's a shortage with God? But you need to see something very particular here in this verse, and that is that God was alone. This, you may not realize, but this verse, this beginning, is before the beginning in Genesis 1-1. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God was there and He created. So there was something in addition to God, right? Right? But this verse is before that, in the beginning when there was only God and there was nothing else. Creation doesn't come in chapter one of John until verse three, when it says all things came into being through him. So this verse points us to eternity past, the beginning without beginning, the beginning before there ever was a beginning, that's eternity past when there was only God and what you need to see here is that God was alone. God was alone. Um, well, I, I need a couple helpers up here. Maybe maybe you two brothers could come up here on the stage. Um, now one of you gets to be God. And the other one gets to be Adam. Okay, Aiden is Adam and Isaac is God. Oh, by the way, this this is a mirror. It's just a regular old mirror from Walmart. Nothing fancy, no tricks going on up here. Now, when God made Adam. You know, there in Genesis 2, it says he made Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So here's God and he's looking at the man that he had made. And it tells us in chapter 1 that when God made Adam, he said, let us make man in in our image, right? God made man in His image, in God's own image. So when God is looking at Adam, what image do you see? (laughs) So let me ask you this then, in chapter 2, when God looks at this man and He says, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for... He's not talking about this man, per se, right here. He's talking about himself. It's Not good for me to be alone. He was looking at a mirror image of himself. It's Not good for him to be alone. God was alone, but he didn't want to be alone. You see that? Thank you, brothers. Um, <clears throat> Listen, in himself, God is complete. God is perfect. God is fully content in himself, within the Trinity of the Godhead. But he had a desire in his heart. He had a good pleasure. Ephesians tells us in the good pleasure of his heart. Because he had this good pleasure to have uh, a companion, a counterpart. Because he didn't want to be alone, he worked out a plan, he worked out an arrangement. And in the book of Ephesians, it's called the economy of God. It's his economy, his plan, his arrangement to produce for himself a counterpart that matches him. But at this point, in John 1.1, God is alone, and God in the next verse, 1 John 4, 8, it says, God is what? God is love. So God, who is love, was alone. How can that be? God, who is love, was alone. If you put these two verses together, John 1, 1 and 1 John 4, 8, what you can see is that God, who is love, was alone. And realize that love is always seeking an object. Love is always seeking an object. So in eternity past, he saw you as the object of his love. You, human beings made in the image and likeness of God. When he looked in the mirror at himself, he said it's not good for him to be alone. He's talking about himself. And he saw you as the object of His love. And in eternity past, God's object was us. And we see this in at least three ways. In 1 Peter 1-2a, let's read that together, go. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God foreknew us. In eternity past, He knew us, He foreknew us. Before there was a creation, before there was anything, There was just God Himself alone, who is love. And the object of His love was you. He foreknew you. And then the next verse, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. He foreknew us. He chose us. He chose us to be holy and without blemish before Him in love. And then verse 5 says, predestinating us unto sonship. Predestinating us. He foreknew us. He chose us. He predestinated us. That means He marked us out. Before you even existed uh, as part of the material creation, (laughs) He saw you and He marked you out. Um, Okay, now this brings us to the next point, too. The incarnation. And we put this here as part of the phrase, the love of God, because look, let's read 1 John 4, 8, and 9 together. Go. In this, the love of God was manifested, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might have life and live through Him. So the incarnation of Christ, which I think Meryl's going to write down next, is the manifestation of the love of God. The love of God was manifested in that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. And then, concerning this Son, let's all read Isaiah 9-6 together. For a child... The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This child, this son, is called the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. But look what it says. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. You know what that word means literally in the, in the Greek? It liter- or sorry, the Hebrew. This is from the Old Testament, Isaiah. It literally means incomprehensible. This one, this child born, this son given, who's called the eternal father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. He is wonderful. He is incomprehensible. He Listen, he was a mingling of God and man. A mingling of God and man. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. Incomprehensible. How can you even comprehend of that, right? But that's what he was. To the sinners and the tax collectors that he hung around with, they, they just thought he's just a man. They were comfortable to be with him, to eat with him, to talk with him. But the more they got to know him, the more they discovered there's something about this person incomprehensible who is this person <laughs> who is this jesus christ you know <clears throat> as i mentioned earlier his desire is that all of us would be part of his counterpart right just part of him His expression, His representation, His duplication on the earth. Imagine, Lincoln, imagine you're sitting in class and the person sitting next to you doesn't even know that you are a mingling of God and man. You're just another student in the class, a handsome young man. Um, You're enjoying the professor's teaching. Maybe you decide to study together with the person next to you. And, you know, maybe the first time you get together to study or play basketball together, I don't know what you all like to do, uh, He just thinks, oh, this is a a cool kid, cool man. But the more he gets to know you, one day he's going to come up to you and he's going to say, man, what makes you tick? Why are you different than everybody else? There's something about you. I can't put my finger on it, but you are different. It's because you're not just a man, you're a God-man. God has come in to dwell in you. You are a believer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Then God himself, in Christ, as the Spirit, has dispensed himself into you, he dwells in you, he's mingling himself with you, he's growing in you, and when people touch you, incomprehensible, wonderful, and they're attractive, they're drawn, the infinite God became a finite man. And in this man, you know, Colossians 2.9, it says, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him bodily. Incomprehensible. All the fullness of the godhead was dwelling in him bodily. Isaac, that is incomprehensible. Wonderful. That is wonderful. Then we go on to John 1:14. Let's read this together. Go. Amen. Well, that's a strange word. Tabernacled? Tabernacled? What if you came home, Isaac, and you told your mom, oh, Aiden's going to come over and tabernacle with us? <laughs> you know, that, that is a verb. He tabernacled. But it's It's the verb form of the noun, what? Tabernacle. The tabernacle. Which in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place on earth. Now, God's dwelling place was a man, Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Him bodily. So that's why it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Um, And this also implies that there is now a change in dispensations. A change. Uh, It's no longer God dwelling in a physical tent made out of wood overlaid with gold and covered with four layers of cloth and linen and so forth. He was dwelling in this man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was, God was tabernacling among us. Incomprehensible. Praise the Lord. Um, You know, with um, with the tabernacle, there were three parts. There was the outer court, and then there was the holy place, and then there was the deepest part. The innermost part was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's presence was. That's where God dwelled. And it was a fearful thing for the priest to go in to the presence of God. The the high priest could go in once a year. He had to wear some bells on the bottom of his garment that made some noise so that if he went in, and he something wasn't proper you know he would be smitten down dead right there and they had a rope tied around his foot so they could drag him out because nobody dared to go in to the presence of God it was a fearful thing but today there's been a change in dispensation God became a man he tabernacled among us he tabernacled he became so approachable so approachable That even the sinners and the tax collectors, you think they really knew they were approaching God when they were coming to this one? (laughs) But this was the approachable God. This is the love of God, so approachable. No more fear, but grace and reality. That's what the verse says, grace and reality. Okay, now we'll come to the next part of the outline, point B, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this part begins with the human living of Christ. So, I don't know if, if Merrill's going to keep drawing up there, but uh, <clears throat> we want to write incarnation at the bottom of that line, and, or at least I-N-C. And then uh, we can just put H-L on top of that horizontal line. That stands for human living. Jesus Christ lived... Thirty-three and a half years, and he did not bypass any step of human life. He didn't just suddenly appear as a 30-year-old man and begin his ministry. No, he was conceived in the womb of Mary, who was a descendant of Adam. Adam fell. Adam had the sin nature. Mary was a descendant of Adam. A sinner, just like you and me. But the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and conceived in her womb. Even the angels didn't know what to call it. They said the holy thing which is conceived in you will be called the Son of God. Of course, Jesus didn't have sin because His Father was God. Somehow sin is transmitted through the male line his father was god so he got he picked up the human nature but he didn't get the sin right praise the lord so we have this next verse here let's read hebrews 4:15 and 16 go who has been tempted in all respects like us, yet without sin. Let us therefore come forward with boldness to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace for timely help. And you need to highlight, underline, circle the words like us. Like us. You know why he can be tempted with the feeling of our weaknesses because he became like us in every respect except without sin. He was like us. So not only did he become approachable, um, but in his human living, there was a total identification with you and me. A total identification, a total involvement with man. So that whatever situation you're going through, Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, He knows what it's like. He was totally involved with the human life and the human nature. He was like us. And He knows what you're going through, and that means He has the ability to supply you with grace and meet your need. And we can come forward with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for timely help. Um, Anyways, it's marvelous that verse 16 follows verse 15. (laughs) He's like us, so now we can come forward with boldness. And like I mentioned, he didn't bypass any steps. He didn't take any shortcuts. Um, If you look at these next two verses in Matthew, you can see that he... He had four brothers and at least two sisters. He had siblings. Do you have any siblings, Isaac? Yeah, I know who she is. Does she ever bother you? Does she ever cause you to lose your temper? Does she ever do things on purpose to try to get you to lose your temper? He had four brothers, and he had two at least two sisters. Because, I mean, his brothers' names are mentioned there. You know, after Jesus was born of Mary, Mary and Joseph had four more boys, and they had some girls. It says his sisters, plural, so that's at least two. He was in that kind of situation, same situation Isaac's in, a little sister. Trying to get him to lose his temper. A little brother taking his toys and saying, this is mine. But he had no sin. His human living was perfect. Faultless. Then he, as he was growing up, Eventually, he became a model for us, a model. Um, And the primary model that he left us was the model of a man living by another life. And I think that phrase is worth writing down, a man living by another life, living by another life. Take a look at John 14.10. It says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from myself, but the Father who abides in me does his works. He was always living by another life, living by the Father's life. He could have done whatever he wanted to do, and it would have been perfect. It would have been sinless. But he chose not to. He chose to live by the Father's life. And carry out the Father's will. And speak the Father's words. Not His own. He denied Himself. And He lived by another life. You you might think, well, that's not fair. that, That Jesus would expect me to live the same kind of life that He lived. He had no sin. I can't live that kind of a life, but listen, whether you have sin or you don't have sin, your human life needs to be denied and you need to live by another life. (laughs) That's the model he left us. It wasn't a model of living a perfect human life. It was the model of living by another life. So regardless of how sinful you are or how not sinful you are, it doesn't matter. It needs to be denied. And we need to practice and exercise to live by another life. To live by God's life. And the way he did it was that he was always praying. You know, prayer joins us to God. He was a man of prayer. We put this verse here, Mark one thirty-five. It says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still night, He went out and went away to a deserted place and there he prayed. This was his practice to pray. He was always praying. Um, You know, before every major thing that the Lord was about to do, he prayed. You take a look at the Gospel of Luke, which is the Gospel that shows his fine humanity. You know, the different Gospels show Christ in different aspects. Matthew shows him as the king descended from King David, the rightful heir to the throne, coming to set up his kingdom on the earth. Mark shows him as a servant, as a slave. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give him himself as a ransom for man. John's gospel shows he's God. We just read the first verse, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But Luke's gospel, more than any of the other gospels, shows his human living. Even there's some stories there that aren't mentioned in, in any of the other gospels, but so many details showing his fine human living. And, and you just consider, before the Lord was baptized, in Luke 3:21, he was praying. He was praying before he took that step to be baptized. In chapter 6, Luke 6, 12 and 13, before He chose the 12 apostles, it says He was praying. In fact, it says He prayed all night. He prayed all night, contacting the Father, to be one with the Father, that the Father's will would be taken place in that choosing. In chapter 9 of Luke, verses 18 to 19, Before Peter got the revelation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says he was praying. Probably he was praying to the Father that Peter would get the revelation, that Peter would have veils rolled away so he could see, I am the Christ. He was praying. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, before he was transfigured on the mountain, he was praying. Before he went to the cross, before he endured crucifixion, he was praying. Several times it mentions that in Luke 22 and Luke 23. And then there's also a number of teachings in Luke concerning prayer. Men ought always to pray. Prayer is the way to live out this model, to live by another life. To deny ourselves, to live by another life. You know, toward the opposers, and the Lord had many opposers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders, the chief priests, he had a lot of opposers. Before his opposers, he was living by another life. You know, the opposers were grumbling at one point. They said, doesn't this man know that the ones he's eating with are tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus, um, he stops and he answers by unveiling more of Christ and unveiling man's true condition. If people were grumbling about us, we might grumble back at them. But he responded in a way that showed he was just one with the Father. He was in fellowship. He was in constant fellowship with the Father. One, at one point, he is rebuking all the cities that had rejected him. And in the middle of that rebuking, he says, I extol you, Father. It's as if he was praying while he was rebuking, he was just one with the Father. Carrying out the Father's will to rebuke these cities. I already mentioned that he prayed all night before he chose the 12 apostles. And surely he knew that Judas was the one who would betray him. But you never get the impression, you never pick up any flavor that Jesus treated Judas in a lesser way than any of the others. He treated him the same. If we knew that that one was going to betray us, for one thing, we we surely wouldn't let him carry the money bag around, (laughs) but he was the one that carried the money bag. But with Jesus, there was no bias. There was absolutely no bias. He was living by another life. He was just one with the Father. Okay, we have to move on to the next step in the process, and that is crucifixion. Let's all read John one twenty nine together. Go. Well, you know what? Crucifixion is so good because it deals with every incompatibility between us and and God. God created us in His image and likeness as a vessel. He wants to dispense Himself into us, but there's, we're full of pollution. We're, we're full of dirt. We're not compatible. But the death of Christ on the cross, His crucifixion deals with every incompatibility. It deals with sin. That's the sin nature. It deals with sins. Those are the sinful deeds that are produced by the sin nature. It deals with the old man. It deals with the self. It deals with the world. It deals with death. It also deals with the source of all these incompatibilities, which is Satan himself. He's the source. And um, I think we all need to read Hebrews 2.14 together. Since therefore the children have shared in blood and flesh, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the might of death. That is the devil. He destroyed him. Praise the Lord. Look at this next verse. Listen, when David, who represents Christ, slew Goliath, all the Philistines fled. Look at this. Then David ran and stood beside the Philistine. That was their chief warrior. He was the giant, right? Goliath. And David had just slung a stone, hit him between the eyes, and he fell down. And he ran over and took his sword and cut his head off. And then look what it says. And when the Philistines saw that their mighty man was dead, they fled. Praise the Lord. The crucifixion of Christ, it deals with every incompatibility. Sin is no more. The world, self, the old man, the old creation, everything. It's been terminated. It's been destroyed by Christ on the cross. Okay, let's move on. Burial. Maybe you can draw a little tomb there, Merrill. Thank you. You know, you, you might think this is such a small point. Why would we, why would we even spend time on, on burial? Um, <clears throat> and that reminds me, uh, the slide will be coming up soon. Um, <clears throat> well, okay, look at this. In 1 Corinthians 15.4, it says, and that... He was buried. So Paul here is telling the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, and then this verse goes on, and that he was buried. And that he has been raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He specifically points out this matter, he was buried. He was buried. Lincoln, why is this so important? That he was buried. Well, okay, take a look at this next verse. John 19.40. It says, Therefore they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews for burying. Um, So when he was buried... There were some linen cloths and spices and so forth that were wrapping his body. And he was placed in a tomb. Now, look at the next. In John 20, so Simon Peter, he came, he came to the tomb. You know, Mary first, was the first one to, to discover the empty tomb. And she ran and told the brothers, and they ran to the tomb. And Simon Peter, it says, came following him. Um, he was following John and he entered into the tomb and he beheld the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief which had been over his head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in one place apart okay listen when, when Jesus Christ went into the tomb he went into that tomb with something of the old creation the linen claws, the handkerchief. But when he came out of that tomb, all that of the old creation was left behind. It was left in the tomb. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he came out with all the bandages and all the claws wrapped around him still. Everything of the old creation came back out with him. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, everything of the old creation was left behind. Praise the Lord. Well, for Christ's burial, he entered a tomb. Where do we enter? You know, we have, uh, we've been placed into Christ. And everything that he goes through, we also have gone through. We were crucified with Christ. Paul tells us that in Galatians 2.20. In Ephesians 2, it says we've been raised up together with Christ. We've been seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. What about our burial? Where are we buried? Well, listen, we are buried in baptism. Baptism is our burial. You may have received the life of God, the divine life, you got regenerated, you got born again, but you're still encased in the old creation. You can't get free. You want to live by another life. You want to live by the new life that you've received. But you can't do it. You're struggling in your Christian life. We need to be freed. Free So that we can rise up to walk in newness of life. You see, that's the, ver- the next verse. Let's read it together, Romans 6 4, and then maybe the brothers could put that slide up on the screen. Go ahead with the verse. We have been buried, therefore, with him through baptism into his death, in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. Did you realize that your baptism is a burial? It's a burial. We've been buried together with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we might walk in newness of life. Well, I don't know if you can see this diagram. Oh, got a little pointer here. Praise the Lord. Thank you, brothers. Okay, that is a seed. Uh, this diagram is, is especially for Martin Fuller. Is he here? Amen. Brother Martin. He likes these kind of <coughs> things. Okay, this is a little seed. Actually, there it is right there before it begins to sprout. Inside the seed, you can see it starting to emerge right here, is a baby plant. That is a brand new life. When you got born again... You received a brand new life. And and look, that life has the capacity to live like this in a whole new way. To photosynthesize, to take in sunlight, energy, to take in CO2 from the air, to absorb water and minerals from the soil, make its own food, to live in a brand new way. But right now, it's trapped. Inside this old seed coat. Something of the old creation. That seed coat is from the old creation, (laughs) literally. Uh, It's from the maternal plant that that little baby came from. And right now, that little baby plant is living in there. It's breathing. It's metabolizing stored food. It has the potential to live in a brand new way. It has the potential, Tim, ooh, it it has the potential to live like that, right there, in a brand new way. But it's living in an old way here, metabolizing stored food. It needs to be buried. If that seed just stayed on the tabletop, it could stay there for years, kind of in a hibernation state, still alive. Yes, it has life, it has the new life, but it can't live in the new way. I, shared, I might have shared this before. Some archaeologists found some grains of wheat in the pyramids in Egypt that they estimated to be 1,200 years old. And they buried some of them, and some of them actually sprouted, germinated. Still alive after 1,200 years. Can you imagine if you got regenerated? Five years ago. The life is in there, but it's just trapped. You're not able to live by that life. You're not able to express that life. You're trying hard to live the Christian life. It's not possible. Until you get buried. Buried together with Christ into His death through baptism. Then... You will have a way to live a brand new life. Just like the verse says here. Let's read it again. Romans 6, 4, go. We have been buried, therefore, with Him through baptism into His death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Oh, we have a new life, Brother Chris. We want to walk in newness of life. Walk according to that life. Live a duplication of the life of Christ on the earth. Expressing Him. Representing Him. Overflowing Him to the people around us. So that He could be multiplied on this earth. Not possible until we get baptized. So we always encourage the young people who have received Christ, to be baptized. To be baptized. Maybe you were baptized by your parents when you were eight weeks old. Were you conscious of God at that time? Maybe you had an experience of baptism that you weren't really sure about because you just did it because everyone was doing it. If you have been stuck in your Christian life, you need to consider, maybe you need to be buried. That everything of the old creation be left behind in the tomb. And you could come out. You know, when Jesus came out of the tomb, He didn't just explode out of the tomb. He took time to fold the linen cloths. Peter saw them there. Folded up in the corner. We'll talk about that in a minute. Marvelous. Lincoln, it's incomprehensible. Wonderful. Amen. Okay, let's go on to 4. Resurrection. Acts 2.24. Go. Having loosed the pangs of death, since it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Oh, it was not possible. Underline that. Circle that. Not possible. Not possible. To be held by death, you know, up until this time, in the history of the planet Earth, up until this time, death had always won. Death was the winner. You know, they say cats have nine lives, eventually it's over though, right? I've heard of some people that had two lives they they were clinically dead and then they got resuscitated they came back to life but eventually they died again and that was it death won death has always won well when jesus was there death he was there hanging on the cross he was nailed to the cross death no doubt was mocking jesus you think you're going to win For the whole course of planet Earth and all the life that has gone through planet Earth, death has always won. When the two disciples who, after the Lord's crucifixion, they were walking on the way to Emmaus, Hudson, you remember, they were sad. It specifically says there in Luke uh, 24, they were sad. You know why? They thought death won. They saw him crucified. They saw him bleeding. They saw him give up the spirit, breathe his last breath. But then the Lord joined them on that road and he started a conversation with them. They didn't know it was him. And then they convinced him to enter the house with them, and then he manifested himself. And they realized, he's alive! And then they ran, and they told the others. They went all the way back to Jerusalem, and they told the others. And you know what it says? It says the others didn't believe them. (laughs) Why? Because death had always won! But we we need to realize it was not possible. It was not possible for him to be held by the pangs of death. He just spent a little tour in Hades, prophesying to the angels who were bound down there, preaching the gospel to them, and then he rose up, walked out of the grave, folded the linen cloths. It was no competition. It was not possible. Praise the Lord for resurrection. Luke 24, 26, it says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? You know, when He entered into His glory, there was a change in form and in availability. When He was the man Jesus, walking on the earth, eating, eating, with the tax collectors and sinners, spending time with his disciples, he was very limited. If you wanted to talk to God, to the Son of God, you had to be in that location on the the planet Earth (laughs) at that time, 2,000 years ago. But after his crucifixion, he entered into glory. He was transfigured in his form. He became, it tells us in the Scriptures, He became the life-giving Spirit. And as the Spirit, He is now available. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever time period you're living in, He's available. This is resurrection. And Acts 13.33, it says that God has fully fulfilled this promise to us, their children, in raising up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Well, you would think it would say, um, not in the raising up of Jesus, but in the incarnation of Jesus. In the incarnation of Jesus, it is written, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. When he was begotten in the womb of Mary. But it says, in the raising up of Jesus. This day I have begotten you. We need to see that in the resurrection of Christ, there was a begetting that took place. He was already the only begotten Son of God from eternity past. But in his resurrection, his humanity was begotten to be the Son of God. It was sunized, it was brought into divinity. And now there is a man on the throne, there's a man in glory. That man is Jesus Christ, and he is now not only the only begotten Son of God, but he in his resurrection became the firstborn Son of God. The firstborn of many brothers. Hallelujah for the many brothers in this room. That includes you, sisters. Praise the Lord. Okay, um, let's move on. We need to wrap up fairly quickly. Um, I already mentioned that verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five, that he became a life-giving spirit. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 3 together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has regenerated us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when he resurrected, he became the firstborn of many brothers, and according to this verse, we all got regenerated. Isaac, you might think, wait a minute, I got regenerated seven years ago, or whenever it was, ten years ago. But the Bible says we were regenerated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he came up out of the tomb, he came up with his mystical body, which includes all the members. It's a fact that took place 2,000 years ago. Amen. Um, <clears throat> okay, now we have to move on. Let's take a look at number five. And this, uh, Merrill's going to draw uh, the last part of this diagram. Now remember the first part, God in eternity past. Stepping out of eternity into time to become incarnated. This is the love of God. Then you have the grace of Christ, which includes his human living, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, uh, <clears throat> oh, actually, we're still on, we haven't talked about ascension yet. We need to talk about ascension. Um, this is still part of the grace of Christ. Look at this verse in Acts 1.9. It says, when he had said these things, while they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him away from their sight. This was his public ascension. He ascended publicly before 500 witnesses and he ascended up into the clouds. They, they all saw it. And in 236 of Acts, it says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you have crucified, he was made Lord and Christ. He was made Lord to possess all. He was made Christ, God's anointed, to carry out God's commission. This is the ascended Christ. And then 531. Let's read 531 together. Go. Okay, in this verse, I want you to underline leader and underline Savior. He has been exalted to the right hand as leader and Savior. And, you know, as the leader, this means that Christ is the ruler. He's overruling everything. And particularly, everything in our environment. Everything in your environment, He is arranging. He is managing everything in your environment. Did you realize that you have a manager? He's managing your environment. Um, He arranged who your parents would be. He arranged how your parents would meet. He arranged when and where you were born. He arranged who your friends would be. He's been managing that, who your friends would be. He has been arranging where you went to school, where you went to college. That has been arranged by the leader. He's the leader so He can be the Savior. He's arranging all your circumstances so he can save you to the uttermost. When I was about four, four and a half years old, my dad decided he always wanted to live on a farm. So the family upped and moved out in the middle of nowhere. And that's where I grew up. Alex, that was arranged by the leader. I remember at a certain point when I was a young person, um, I was just really confused. I, I had been regenerated, and there was something within me restricting me from doing what everybody else does. I didn't realize it was the Lord living in me. Until later. But um, I was just upset. I was like, why can't I be like everyone else? And one night, I was out in the field laying on top of a hay bale. We had these big round hay bales. And I was just looking up at the stars. I might have been 13 years old. And I was just crying out to God, why... Am I different? Why can my brother do this? And why my sister can do that? And And after a lengthy time of tears and crying to God, I just felt so peaceful inside, like it's going to be okay. Then a few years later, my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was 17, and two years later she died. Um an environment that was arranged by the leader. You know, some people, when, that, when things like that happen, they get bitter. I got closer to God. It was arranged by the leader so he could save me to the uttermost. When I applied to graduate school, I applied to five schools. I, Texas was my last choice. I'm from Pennsylvania. I didn't have the grades to get into UT. I didn't have the GRE scores to get into UT. UT had the number one department of such and such in the country that I eventually entered. I applied to five schools, Alex. I got accepted into two of them, and only UT offered financial support, guaranteed for the course of my graduate work. The leader arranged. The leader managed my environment. On my way to Texas, a year prior to that, I was in an internship in Florida. I became good friends with some of the interns. One in particular, I wanted to visit. On my way to Texas, I drove. I drove to Florida, from Pennsylvania to Florida, to visit that friend and their family. Little did I know, they were Pentecostals. And they took me to a meeting. And then I got into a little argument with the pastor about baptism. He said, you need to be baptized. I said, I've already been baptized. But the leader was in my spirit managing, arranging, who, would I, who I would meet, how I would get baptized. Eventually, I said, well, because I thought they were going to say, you have to join my church. I said, well, what if I stay where I'm at and I get baptized your way? They said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. I said, well, all right, then let's do it your way. <laughs> I thought they were going to sprinkle me in the back room. But you know what they did? They gave me a change of clothes and and took me to the ocean and buried me. They buried me. I guess the seed's gone. And 3 days later I met the brothers and sisters at UT Austin. You see the leader. He's the leader. So that he could be the savior. He is arranging your environments, even all your disappointments. I know many of you have disappointments. You thought you were going to be going somewhere? I know one of my kids is very disappointed about where she ended up in college. She's not here tonight. But... uh, But in the back of my mind, I'm always just realizing it's the leader, the manager of our environment. He put her exactly where she needs to be so that he can save her to the uttermost. Your environment is what the Lord uses to crack you open, to cause you to open to the Lord, to cause you to cry out to him, Lord, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why did I end up there? Why not over there? The leader and Savior. This is Christ in his ascension and enthronement. Ruler over all of our environments so that he could save us to the uttermost by dispensing himself into every crack in our being that's caused by the environments that we're in. Praise the Lord. Don't you love the leader and Savior? Amen. Well, we wrap up this diagram uh, with the last section, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which includes the descension of Christ and His indwelling. So after He was enthroned, then uh, it tells us that on the day of Pentecost, He was poured out as the Spirit upon all flesh. This is His descension, and He came right into the middle of your being, which is your human spirit, the moment you repented and believed. You heard the gospel, or maybe you read the Bible. I know there's a brother back here. He was reading the Bible. He got to chapter 5 or 6 of the New Testament. He threw up his hands. How can I be like this? He got saved. Just by reading the Bible. The Spirit was poured out and he comes right inside, and that's the indwelling. Of course, you've seen these three circles before, right? We have a, a outermost part, that's our body. We have our soul, which is our psychological part, our mind, emotion, and will. But there's something even deeper inside of every human being. That is your human spirit that corresponds to God who is spirit. So the resurrected Christ, as the life-giving spirit, can now descend from the heavens from the throne of God in the heavens, as a river of water of life, dispensing himself right into the middle of our being, to be installed as a fountain of living water, gushing up into eternal life. Right there in the middle of our being, there is a fountain, a fountain. We can turn. He's so available, we can turn. Every time we call on his name, oh, Lord Jesus, we just take another drink from the fountain of living waters. That's been installed. And so you can just imagine. You see this whole process. There was God in eternity past. Alone. God who is love. God who had us as the object of his love. And he created us. But then man fell. Man fell into sin and separation from God. Man grieved God so much. And... Even worshipped idols and things like that. And then time went on, time went on. And then in the fullness of the times, 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of eternity into time, became a man like you and me, like us, in every way, yet without sin. And um, he lived a perfect human life to shed a perfect blood for a perfect redemption. And he was buried in the tomb, and he resurrected He went through, you know, all of this is a process. It's a process that he went through so that he could eventually pour himself out into our being and install himself as a fountain of living waters in our being. And so my final words tonight are, brothers and sisters, do not waste the process. Don't waste the process. On God's side, it's all done. Everything is finished. He's just waiting for us to turn, to call, to drink. Don't waste the process. Amen.